recorded during the Plague Year 2020. This is the Andromeda Minute. Each week we get together to talk about the all-too-timely 1971 Robert Wise-directed techno-thriller The Andromeda's Train, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And joining once again inside the circular bunker that we call the research facility, I'm Alan Sanders from The Wilder Ride. And sneaking in through the back door, I am the other host of The Wilder Ride, Walt Murray. Wrong back door, Walt. (laughs) Here we are. I somehow (laughs) knew. (laughs) Good to have you. It's Friday, and we're somewhere... We're, we're somewhere in the, uh, I don't know where this room is in relationship to Delta 5. I'm assuming the, the Delta 5 squad room thing is through the other side of those, all those TV sets. But uh, they've managed to fit every, uh, you know, again, not a, not a square corner in, in any of these rooms. Um, but they do have a, an awful lot of TV sets. Um, and we're getting into the, uh, I guess this is the, maybe the fourth exposition scene. So uh, we're yeah, of many, much. many more to come. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into the uh, scrubbing and bathing part, uh, we're getting into the <laughs> this, this Anton Chekhov is rolling in his grave with a shotgun uh, at his yeah, wrapped in his arms because there is so much. By the way, this is uh, here. Here's two keys. The uh, uh, Dr. S- Dr. Stone awards uh, Dr. Hall with a red key and then he takes the silver key. And um, apparently Dr. Stone knows how to uh, use a, a combination lock that doesn't have any numbers on it. I don't know. Okay, how, I totally could not figure that out. Well, how do... I thought they were memorizing the clicks. Ooh, maybe. Like it or... was purposely kept with nothing. You just had to know how many clicks forward, then how many clicks back. Wow. What happens if you get it wrong? Does it well, start the countdown? Then that, <laughs> that cute little square doesn't pop out and you can't insert your key. You got to start over. Yeah. <laughs> or you um, call them you call the janitor and he comes up and he unlocks it with a master key. <laughs> ding-a-ling. Yeah. <laughs> ding-a-ling. Hello, ding-a-ling to, alert. You have to unplug it for 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to reboot it. It's a tilt. Dead gummit. <laughs> I just they could, you know, he gets it wrong and then you just they cut back to uh, the sergeant in Delta 5 just banging, <laughs> banging his head on the desk. Why me? You know, like like uh, like Bobby Troop in uh, in Mash. Yes, just, damn U.S. Army, and just keep punching punching the the jeep. And they're all uh, like, "Please, for God's sakes, don't screw this up. We do not need the sergeant back." Uh, so he uh, he he does all the you know. This is super. Uh, every t- all the, this movie is a series of get smart gags. I just keep seeing endless doorways opening, locks on top of locks on top of locks, and. Uh, here, uh, Doctor Stone un, undoes the uh, the lock, and another you know the thing to pop the key in comes out. And uh, the only bit of acting I like from uh, Arthur Hill in this scene is I think his hand shakes a bit when he's putting the the silver key in because he knows I've just turned on an atomic device. Oh, is that how you took it? I was like, don't break the prop, don't break the oh. prop. <laughs> well, there's, well, there's that. Yeah, that could be too. <laughs> it's like it's so thin. It's like oh, it's turning. <laughs> Well, and you can tell there's some resistance to it too. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right, Jim. I'm making jokes, but I do think you're right. I did. I honestly, I did go. Look how thin that looks. He's trying not to break it inside yeah. there. But yeah. at the same time, you don't want to screw up arming the nuclear device that's going to incinerate everybody if the disease gets out. Yeah, especially since there's no uh, red key 
uh, in that room. So <laughs> if, if they didn't test everything out and they suddenly have a fail-safe condition here, um, I don't know, you know, but tell Dr. Hull, oh, by the way, run outside and plug it in somewhere because uh, we're going <laughs> to blow up in five minutes if you don't get this done. Uh, one thing I do notice in in moving in watching these movies at at this you know Zapruder film uh, Warren Commission rate is uh, <laughs> gosh doesn't Doctor Stone have the best manicure I mean those those are the like the perfect he could be modeling a Rolex with those with those perfectly rounded fingernails he looks like he has never done any manual labor <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think he has he someone to... else feed him the French fries when he goes to McDonald's. Just... Yeah, no kidding. Like he, he doesn't even own a shovel. Mr. Ho- got no. silly hands, Mister Hooper. You've been counting money all your life. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those, those those fingers have never seen a hangnail ever. Uh, just and a perfect California tan on top of them all. So it just wow. Uh, too too many uh, too many Berkeley summers. Um, <laughs> now, did you notice in, in the design of the key, if we didn't know that this was to arm or disarm a nuclear device, they have the biohazard thing yeah. cut into it? Right. Yeah, it's, well, it's the radiation hazard. It's the three yeah, Radiation, not bio. So, yeah. yeah, radiation yeah, hazard. Fall, yeah, the fallout shelter look. A great, great design, too. I mean, it's just really beautiful. Yeah, if you wanted to... And in the book, they mentioned that the reason that the metal handle is on there is so that it would get a biometric reading of Dr. Hall. So Dr. Hall would be the only one that could use the key. In uh, in the facility, although how oh. they ever got a biometric reading from him when he didn't read any of the books and didn't know he was going to be responsible for uh, you know a nuclear device? Uh, <laughs> wow! Somebody somebody fell through at the uh, the, the top secret clearance. <laughs> the clearance work on this wasn't very good. I don't think he had much of a background check. Um, it's. It, by the way, you know all those all of those uh, props are available as reproductions, and it's been very tempting for me. They're only about seventy four dollars. You can get them online, and it's like I want a I want a box in case of alien uh, invasion. Break <laughs> glass. They're uh, they're gorgeous. That uh, they're such perfect little. I mean, this is this is what a nuclear bomb uh, arming mechanism should look like. Well, it'd be you know, great if you be... could get that and have it in a way that they could cut your car key into it. Ooh, yeah. That, or I was going to say, like a USB drive. Oh, yes. yeah. Ooh, yeah, for sure. It just looks like something that you'd use to, um, you know, release the locks on a, on a camper van or something. Just... <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, they don't... I'm glad you brought that up about the book, because when you look at it, I'm like, is this really the hardest lock to either arm or disarm when it's just a rectangle square? So there's no grooves there's no teeth there's no typical things you would find on a key that would hit the different tumblers to open it up or or unlock something it just looks like a piece of metal that you just insert yeah yeah but it does have the uh, the biometric addition which uh you know pretty pretty advanced i thinking for uh for the 1970s i remember i was surprised uh on a recent trip to uh, disney world which who knows if we'll ever go there again um but they one of the things that uh, Disney does is they do biometric readings when you're when you're doing a ticket, so that if you're using a multi-day ticket, you they measure your the length of your fingers to uh, to make sure that nobody else is using uh, your multi-day ticket. Wow! Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a thing now. That's I was, crazy. I was quite, quite surprised. Oh dang it! <laughs> no, yeah, I, I was hoping to go back to Disney. Yeah, no well, more no, trading it, tickets with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar there, Alan. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to saw his hand off, and you know. Use, like, <laughs> like, Sorry, <laughs> park rules. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, you know, like oh, De- Demolition Man was not taken into consideration when they were designing Disney security. <laughs> I'll keep it on ice for you. There, I'll, I'll need your back. retina. Sorry, retina. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So where... I do love that though. This and we talked about it a little bit last uh, episode about how Crichton was able to sort of see the tea leaves of technology, where we were today, what was being hypothesized maybe within the next few years, and then he could extrapolate pretty well 20, 30, 40 years out, and, and it made it realistic. A lot of his books have a lot of, a lot of the jargon. You go, holy cow, he really had a sense of where the future could go. Yeah, I, I, was, I was stunning. Uh, his, the next book that he had written after this, The Terminal Man, uh, it talked about using uh, deep, uh, deep neural probes to uh, to stop people from having psychotic episodes and things. And uh, oh, I've, wow! I've had uh, I've had friends who uh, who've had uh, epileptic uh, problems, and they they have been given uh, basically the, the same thing that's in. The, I mean, they weren't turned into psychotic killers, but it managed. They could manage to control their uh, epileptic uh, uh, convulsions. Uh, electronically with a box that was you know much like a pacemaker that you have it installed in your head and uh, it's it slows down uh, any any kind of epileptic seizures uh, so you know he he isn't he I, I'm always it's always impressive how he, he isn't that far off on things uh, I, we haven't seen any Tyrannosaurus Rexes wandering around the streets lately hopefully but um, you know it's not out of the it's it's not completely out of the question that the stuff that he talks about is uh, you know could happen well, and I think that was one of the geniuses of Jurassic Park. When when you read the book, you're like, "Now wait a minute, how, how far off are we from this?" Like it it seems plausible. Um, yeah. It, oh, absolutely. If you've ever read the book, versus like the movie does a great job of summarizing a lot of the technical discussion. We're using the, the 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 idea of using a sort of uh, video showing like you would show at a, at a theme park, very cartoonish, does a, is, is fantastic to kind of summarize. But the book, you believe that there are ways today to fill in those gene sequence gaps. Like, holy crap, we could really do this. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 stunning, and and it's like it all seems, it all seems like he went somewhere, saw them doing this, and came back and reported on it. But yeah, I'll just call it a fiction book. It, it's, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Right. By the way, did you did you find this little anecdotal story about when Michael Crichton visited the set and was given a tour of the studio and who gave him the tour? No. So now this is I read this online, so it must be true. Oh sure. Supposedly, where Spielberg was very young and was you know kind of sneaking on and doing things on the set of Universal, he was the guy who gave Michael Crichton a tour of Universal when they were filming this story and it wow. would be of course Steven Spielberg that would do another Michael Crichton movie when Jurassic Park comes out. Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, Spiel- Spielberg of course was a long time on on the lot at Universal doing things like uh uh, uh Night Gallery and stuff like that. So he was very familiar with the with the team there. Um, yeah. I yeah. I thought when I read that I was like that is just serendipity. You know that here comes Michael Crichton, his first book, young guy, and an even younger guy who's like, I want to be a movie you know, director. And he gives Michael Crichton the tour of the studio, only to one day direct one of his other books and make it into a huge blockbuster. That's crazy. Wow. No, that's wild. W- one thing that c- comes out, and this is throughout the whole movie, but you can, you can feel it in this particular minute. Uh, very impressive sound editing. The idea that as they're... We were talking about you know turning the knob and going click 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 click. 
obviously the prop doesn't do that noise and the, uh, the, the that bank vault sound of the of the lock popping out uh, beautiful use of sound in, in here it's a real credit to the uh, to the sound editors how everything feels you know it, it's not real but it should be real so that that ka-chunk ka-chunk and the click 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 it, it really helps sell the the events happening in this minute um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I was listening to it just now. I hadn't really paid as much attention on the sound design, but little. It's the little. His, here's the thing. You know, it's re, it's really good when you don't pay attention. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Right. When it draws your attention, going, God, that's what, what, it would sound like that. Then you got a problem. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one thing that I, as as I'm watching this this movie here, um, and I you can't help but compare it with other, you know, with modern directors and things like that. You look at all these, uh, the coverage on here, Robert Wise is definitely a cinematic performer. He understands, uh, I mean, he's relying on a cinematographer, but, you know, Robert Robert Wise is calling the shots. And most of these are, you're getting a master shot, you get a two shot, you get uh, the single shot where he's, you know, and then close-ups. He mixes it up with uh, the, the, the location of the camera, the height of the camera, um, you, you get these uh, very subjective views, like you're looking over, you're looking over James Olsen's shoulder as Arthur Hill is explaining what the key is. So you're James Olsen for a moment, holding onto that key as he's explaining what the key is that's in your hand. Um, it, he really, he he understands the language of cinema and and the, between the editing and the the choice locations of where the camera is picking up these things, you compare that to something like. Lucas in his um, prequel era, where it's just back and forth and back and forth and cutting from a master to a two shot, a master to a two shot. Every little, every scene, every piece of this uh, this little storyboarded minute, uh, he makes what would be a dull bit of exposition uh, fascinating just simply from the angles that he chooses. Yeah, although he is still staying very low on a lot of these shots. It's yeah. very much looking up at these titans you know the the language you talk about of, of cinematography i've got is a great book it's an older book but i think if anybody's getting into filmmaking it's called the five c's of cinematography and it really talks about each of the c's of cinematography like composition and and cutting and all these things and and one of the things is where your angles of camera and they say that if you want to create a sense of either intimidation or impressiveness like if somebody's really like is it either larger than life or more menacing you put the camera low and you shoot up. And if you want someone to look kind of diminutive or maybe lesser, you shoot down. And this, and I know you said it last minute, these are supposed to be like the, the, the brightest minds to, to tackle this problem. And we constantly feel like we're looking up to them the whole time. Yeah, it's known that that shot from the, like the knees up when, you, when you're shooting at like almost knee level, that's, that's called the, the American shot because it, the American shot, the American cinema in the 30s when you're watching, especially film noir, uh, this idea that forces and uh, you know other things beyond your reckoning, uh, at, you know, in the audience uh, are taking place. So these people that you're watching, they seem to have the wherewithal to do stuff, and you're just you're basically a little kid compared to how you know where their where their thought levels are. So it's it's fascinating, and of course, you know, Robert Wise, who grew up with Citizen Kane. Uh, working on that getting you know getting all this uh this background for him he has a very almost uh, i try to figure out another word but painterly manner he's a very classical uh way of 
building a you know constructing a scene and it's obviously genius here at work i mean wise really knew how to how to tell a story as we watch it nowadays you know the the mtv age or the you know this this uh bite-sized tiktok uh uh film it feels a little dated from just being kind of prosaic kind of uh you know long very very long drawn out but it gosh he tells the story so well here um, well, have here. you looked at his filmography and saw, I mean, because some directors you feel like, okay, that's a good action director. This is a good dramatic director. This is a good musical director. This guy did it all. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, West Side Story, Sound of Music, Star Trek, the motion picture. He, yeah, and, and, and The Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, there's just so much in the way that he handles it, but it's always about his most important part in anything is the people in the picture. Whenever you see... Uh, people facing uh, decisions or being presented with new information. He always goes for the close-up. He goes for, you know, people in close contact with each other talking. Um, and you can tell his style. He just, that's the way, you know, the most important thing to him in the in the scene, other than, you know, he, he can do the the panorama. He does the big panoramic scenes. But most of the time, he's, he's dealing with people not moving the camera a lot, but letting the letting the people on the stage of the screen, uh, you know, do all the action and let let your eyes follow it rather than having the camera following it. He's just. I look at his career, and because we've talked about him in, in respect too, because um, you know one of the shows that I'm involved with radio <clears throat> radio wise, we talk about nostalgic geekiness, and so Star Trek: The Motion Picture will come up multiple times, especially on an anniversary. You're looking at the guy who directed Sound of Music or West Side Story or Run Silent, Run Deep with Cary Grant. Yeah. And The Haunting and and then this. And then he goes on to – it's like this guy was just fascinated with stories. It didn't matter if it was sci-fi. It didn't matter if it was musical. It didn't matter if it was a World War II drama. And I don't know who we have today that's similar because directors tend to get put in niches and because that's what they're good at. And I don't know if we have a director like this today. Like, is Christopher Nolan the closest we have to somebody who tells a great story and it just happens to be big and cinematic but can handle the character and story? I mean, because I, I can't think of any other directors like a Robert Wise. The only no, one I, I would mean, say is Spielberg. But even yeah. Spielberg has kind of the Spielberg feel. You know the, what I'm saying? Yeah, the look. He's always, he's play, he plays with the camera a lot. I don't think Wise plays with the camera. He, lets, he tries to let his... Uh, I'm going <laughs> to... A long, a million, billion years ago when I was doing film and television uh, camera work, uh, this, I used to have to film football games. And when, you were, when you're filming a football game and uh, the, the, right after the quarterback snap, a quarterback will drop back, you don't follow the quarterback because the motion is going to go, you know, let's say they're on the left-hand side of the field. As the quarterback drops back, you keep them in the, the back two-thirds, of the, the, the left third of your screen, and let the action happen without moving the camera. And he, and Wise, if if Wise has a signature, he holds the camera still and lets his actors fill up the screen with their motions. Um, Spielberg, Spielberg always has that uh, that Truffaut look where he's he they they're looking at something and then he pushes the camera at their face. Where I think Wise relies more on his actors to sell the action, and so he doesn't fling the camera around that much other than you know i mean you can think of the opening of sound of music but uh 
but mostly it's a static camera. Well, well he'll use tracking shots where it makes yeah. sense if people are yeah. walking and stuff. Like in the hallways here, we've had already in these couple of minutes. You know, it's funny you bring up Spielberg again, though. Here we are. Guess who's making, a, who's getting a re-release of West Side Story? Yeah, <laughs> Spielberg <laughs> is redoing yeah. it. Wow. If yeah, if they ever get back to making movies again, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but just uh, it, it's 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 gorgeous. Watch it, it. It's it's always fun watching a master do his job. And, and you know, here it's a perfect combination of not ha he doesn't have any big name actors in any of this. There's no. I mean, David Wayne or maybe Arthur Arthur Hill. This was even before Owen. I thought Marshall. Arthur Hill was probably the most known name. Yeah, yeah. And Arthur Hill hadn't even had Owen Marshall uh, attorney at law yet, so he wasn't even a big name on on TV. He was like a frequent guest star in Quinn Martin productions. Um, but, you know, it, it's like David Wayne was uh, an old hoofer from the 40s. He was in musicals and stuff. Uh, and James Olsen was in, um, I think he was in a couple of, like, FBI style. You know, again, he was another Quinn Martin actor. But I think the lack that the lack of having, I mean, these are, these are all veteran actors, but they weren't the A-list actors. So I think not having a name in there, I mean, if you picture this with, instead of having um, Arthur Hill, if you had, say, a Burt Lancaster or a George C. Scott, you wouldn't be thinking of him as Dr. Stone. You'd be thinking, oh, there's Burt Lancaster. So I think that that casting bit, uh, you know, it probably saved the money because it was you're hiring TV actors. But the other thing is a stroke of genius because you focus on the character instead of the star. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, honestly. I think no. if you've got a, and Walt, I wanted to pull you into this conversation because I think we're heading in a in a direction here that I was curious if you're gonna bring your thought around because you were sort of talking to me off air or or, or off air, geez, okay, not radio. <laughs> you were talking to me before we recorded this. Oh, it's it's one of those you can tell it's a '70s movie. A lot of walking, a lot of talking, but I kind of like that. I feel like almost in some ways you're watching a play take place in front of the camera. Like it's a theatrical production. Well, I do too. And, you know, I, I watched um, two movies this week that were, I think, both supposed to be released in theaters. American Assassin may have been. And um, then a movie called uh, My Spy um, with uh, the guy, one of the guys from... Oh, yeah, um, the, the guy from... Uh... Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, David right? Batista. Yeah. Yeah. So both of them good movies, very entertaining, but they're very quick. You know, it's a quick cut here, quick cut there, a uh, lot of action, um, very few long scenes. And, you know, those are fine and they're entertaining and they, they have their place and serve their purpose. But for a movie like this, you you do have that ability to build a little tension to um, work on the interrelationships of the characters and stuff like that that you don't have in those movies that are just quick hits and move on to the next thing. Well, from a filmmaking perspective, I always look at it this way. How much of the reason we've got so many short cuts is because, or quick cuts, short time before the camera changes, is because we don't have actors anymore that understand the craft of acting for an entire scene. They're used to doing a line, all right, stop, and then set the camera someplace else. Say now the next line, or say that same line 10 times, and it's always like, it feels like we edit and we, re and we get performances one line at a time, where back 30 years ago, it was a scene at a time. You know what's funny, Alan, you say that. In American Assassin, the one place where I, I noticed that they allowed the camera 
to sit. They allowed a scene to dr- to dr- not drag, but to draw out a little bit was when Michael Keaton was involved. Oh, because he knows how to act. He knows how to act. And he, he's one of those characters... He, he can take a character, make it his, but he also can draw you in so much that you want to hear everything that character has to say. And that is a rare thing that I see with actors today. I think some of them can do it. I think Chris Pine can do it. I think there's some others that can. Oh, I think some can, but I wonder how much of the style of directing is keeping them from being trusted that's, to do big That's scenes. what I was about to say, where with directing like this, you, you know, you allow the actors to kind of ferment in that character and, and marinate in it. So it allows the audience to have a, a better feel for being there. And I think even those scenes of just walking down the hall, you feel like you're walking down the hall with them. And so it, it's a, a very different style and it gives a very different feel. I don't think one is necessarily right and the other's wrong, but I do like that. And I think my one criticism of Star Trek, the motion picture is there are a couple of scenes that, seem to just go forever um <laughs> you know wow hey by the way welcome to the star trek motion picture minute <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but i you know but i can see that style transfer you know like I, I can see that style here and i can see that over in star trek where he isn't afraid to let the camera just sit play it let the scene play yeah. out. well here's before we get back to this movie i'm going to give you an example of where i think if directors would trust the audience and let an actor that knows how to act like play out. We just went because the movies are slowly opening up in Georgia. So I've been to the movies three times in the last week. And one of them was I finally got to see Jaws on the big screen. I've seen that movie hundreds of times. But when it came out, it was already in and out at the theater. I mean, I was five when it came out. I wasn't even five. I was four and a half when it came out. So I couldn't. My mom and dad weren't taking me to see Jaws. I finally got a chance to see it. But I saw it with my two oldest daughters who are into the whole hypercut. They like the modern movies, the MCU movies, all the things I still like too. But the scene in the boat when Robert Shaw is explaining the attack of the sharks after being in the water, after being sunk by, you know, in the, US, the USS Indianapolis scene, that's like five and a half or six minutes of nothing going on but one actor talking. And that shows you it's, it's totally possible to hold an audience in the palm of your hand if your actor is good and you trust the actor to tell the story and they can be engaging. Because my girls, they look at that scene and they go, that is one of the most gripping scenes and nothing happens. It's just good storytelling. Yeah, that, was, that movie was made 45 years ago. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, if, if you see that happen in a current movie, I would really be amazed. It's like you said, they, I don't think. Well, there's there's more. There's more than one problem is that directors really don't have um, the kind of control that somebody like a Robert Wise would have demanded. Uh, right now, if you you know if you're not going along with whoever the the money men are, you're you're out. You get you know it, you get right you get dropped, and and somebody that can that knows how to cut a movie will come in because they they're really concerned about how um audience responses are they give them the knob with the plus and the minus and they turn you know turn the plus if you're feeling good about it turn the minus if you're not feeling good about the scene so these movies are edited by audiences mm. and you wind up with uh you know a screen designed by a, a group of people who met at the westwood theater one one tuesday afternoon it's uh it's sad but i mean the 
these uh, the budget for these movies are you know is, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and they just they don't want to they don't want to gamble on uh, doing art when they could be just making money. I mean, that's, but the, right. the result of relying on that kind of stuff is you you wind up with things like uh, uh, Justice League, and you know it's just. It's mm. like this is not working. This is too much stuff. This is all getting crammed in because that's what the audience the audience liked this at any given second. So it's uh, it's a shame. But uh, but maybe, you know what? Yeah. That's where small movies like uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, because it got put um, it got squeezed during the beginning of the outbreak. But the Universal's return to sort of the classic monster movies in this case, The Invisible Man. Yeah, I yep. think that's an example of fairly unknowns. Slower pace, let the tension build. Use CGI sparingly. If you haven't seen that, it's well worth watching. Wow, okay, it's on my list now. <laughs> it's an example of how you can take a movie and say, "Hey, maybe it's okay to be a little bit slower because it's a movie about somebody that we don't see where they are, and you don't know if someone's really there or not." I I thought they did a great job. Well, did, did you had you? I can't remember if you said you'd seen that yet. I've not seen it. My my daughters have all seen it and they love it. And, it's great, and it doesn't it seem is, like their kind of movie. Great. But I, I I think the story is so strong, and um and they were like, "Did you know about the Invisible Man?" I'm like, "Yeah, he's, <laughs> he, hey, Dad, he's this is cool. Here like, a while. He's not there, but then he's there." <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I've I've heard of him. <laughs> so, yeah. You ever heard of King Kong, Godzilla? <laughs> you know. Well, I keep hoping that there will be directors that will take chances like that. Like this guy with a, oh, God, what's his name? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. He did a couple of other, like, sort of lower-budget horror movies that did well. And I always am I'm, oh, Blum, I'm fascinated. Are you talking about Blumhouse? Or? For the guy who did The Invisible Man. Oh, The Invisible Man. I'm not sure. Uh, the one that just came out. Uh, like it, it, it came out in the theater for, like, a day. And because COVID shut everything down... It became uh, like uh, Amazon Prime started introducing the Amazon Prime Cinema Channel, and so you could rent the movie for like yeah. twenty bucks and watch it at home. Uh, um, Lee Wanall, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he he's going to be given, I think, a lot of nods very very quickly with other projects at Universal. Wow. Um, well, I, I, was I would watch it. <laughs> I, I was impressed by um, uh, Danny Boyle, who had done uh, he did Slumdog Millionaire. Um, he had a recent movie called Yesterday. I don't know if you've seen it. It's where uh, yeah, about the guy who was doing Beatle lyrics. Yeah, yeah. He woke up in a he, he woke oh, up in a world yeah. where uh, nobody had ever heard of the Beatles, and he decided see- to start selling. And it's great. It's a great. It's a clever concept, but it didn't require a lot in the way of uh, special effects. And he did a lot of long takes in that. That uh, I was I was watching it and thinking, gosh, this is going on for a minute and a half, and nobody said cut. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, it good, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, it's stunningly good. I mean, uh, Richard Curtis wrote it, you know, from uh, Blackadder, uh, and uh, it is clever, clever script. And I was just impressed by the pace of it. The pace was very uh, low key, and uh, it's nice not having a, a movie full of uh, you know laser beams and 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 people punching each other. So <laughs> it was a nice, you know, nice some, break in some, Sometimes I think we spend so much money on a movie. We use that as an excuse to fill in gaps that were creativity when you don't have a big budget. You end up, like, I, we make this comment a lot about Spielberg, not, not to say that he's not a master. I mean, the guy's a genius. But you look at his last seven or eight films, there hasn't been the really good movie. And you go back to his beginning where, you know, he was trying to, like, make 
make something happen with a lower budget or, you know, trying to figure out, well, we don't have the technology to just throw money at it. We, can, we have to figure out something. You sometimes wonder if maybe the reason we've got films like that we have today is we throw money at the problem instead of throw creativity at the problem. Yeah, it, but the, yeah, it, and again, it's uh, the, the biggest problem is that there's no, there's too much risk. It used to be if you didn't risk a lot in a big budget, you know, you, if you didn't have a big budget, you didn't risk a lot. So you could, you could take chances. But nowadays, everything is, you know, when you see six production companies at the front, that means all these people have pushed in their piles of cash to say, we're going to make money on this movie. And if the movie doesn't make money, it's never going to happen again. So you better check it and make sure that we're going to make money first. Uh, it's it's frustrating. And, you know, it's under, it's understandable. This is a lot of risk for the, for these companies. But I don't know if we I don't know if we're going to see a movie like The Andromeda Strain again. Oh, I don't think so. And I think there's also a big over-reliance on technology and editing. And yeah. that hurts the acting and writing, I think. And when you when you think about this movie as a whole, they're really, other than the floor effects, you know, the, the dead bodies and things like that, or the, uh, the poor monkey, um, there really aren't that many special effects in this. It all relies on the power of the actors being able to convey that what they're doing is real. And, uh, and the ability of the director, the cinematographer, and the editor to tell a decent story. Um, By the way, you, you, you do mention that, but I will tell you, do you know where a big chunk of special effects money went? Um, the actual visual effects of the virus or uh, of the, the, the strain. Right, where it's strain uh, itself. replicating. Yeah, yeah, it was a very early a very early computer systems being able to use. They spent a quarter of a million dollars just on that effect. Wow. wow. So they spent three hundred thousand dollars on a set, <laughs> and two hundred fifty thousand. Like actors are like, wait a minute, how come I'm not getting paid? I got a, I got a TV contract, <laughs> and they're like spending like you know half a million dollars just on a set and one visual effect for the virus. But Robert Wise realized it's all about the virus. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that. No, it's about the set, the claustrophobia, the sense of this institution. You know, we'll bring it back from where we talked about at the beginning of the week. We're walking into this facility. We're going to be here for the rest of the movie, pretty much. Wow. I, I got a, a, a Friday question for you. Uh, given everything, does, does the movie work for you? So here's the thing. I, Walt, I don't know. I want to hear if you've changed your mind. We did an episode before we decided to change the format for our third season. We were kind of doing some bonus episodes, and one was saying what to watch while quarantined. And we picked all these different pandemic movies of like, you know, well, what could you watch that's kind of relatable? And we both said initially, because well, you remembered it being good, and I still think it's great, is Andromeda Strain. So we actually mentioned in an episode several weeks ago, if you've never seen Andromeda Strain, you, you owe it to yourself to see this movie. Because it really was not only the first techno thriller, in my mind, it really was the first sort of, hey, what happens if we bring some bug from somewhere, somewhere that we don't know how to, how to deal with it? What happens? Because that could happen, right? They, they were worried about bringing something back from outer space. And I think it's fantastic. I still think it's a great benchmark. And I think movies today still borrow from scenes that we've seen here in this movie. You know, I think you can go back to almost any of the pandemic movies, and there's something that they've copied or borrowed from this movie. Well, I would agree with you. I I think going in, you need to kind of have the understanding that it is a 1971 movie, and it's not an action thriller. So if it were done today, I think you would have some kind of, 
you know. Well, they did redo it, and I think it sucked. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that you've got some Russian agent chasing around with, you know. So, you know, that's not what this is. This is a 1971, um, more of a psychological thriller, I guess, if, if I have to categorize it. But it is very good, and it is very interesting in my mind that the solution to this is you have to take your best minds and pull them away and put them somewhere and basically lock them in a chamber and get them working on it. And that, you know, this is complex. This is a tough issue and it could wipe out all of humanity. And, you know, we really need to go to work on it. I I think it, I think it is. I think it's a very good movie. I think it's uh, definitely got some things that are groundbreaking that we've talked about. Um, there's not a lot of humor, but it's also not a humorous topic. And so there's a, a lot of um, strength and severity to it. So I, I think it's great. I, I absolutely recommend that people watch it. And I will probably watch it again here in the next week or two. Um, but I, I think the acting is fantastic. Of course, it's really well written um, and well directed. So, yeah, I, I definitely recommend it. Cool. Well, yeah, that seems to be a pretty much universal I mean, of, of all the people I've had on, on the show. I, I haven't met anybody that doesn't like the movie. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a class. I think it's a forgotten classic. Not many people realize that it's out there. And when they, if, if, I've talked with a couple of people who have never seen it before. When they see it, they like, wow, this is great. How come I never saw this before? And it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's, been on, <laughs> it's always on cable. About every you know three months, it'll suddenly get uh, airplay on yeah. TNT. But uh, just a beautiful film, and uh, and nice seeing seeing all these folks really at the peak of their their you know B grade careers. Um, but they they do an, a very adequate job, and they all seem to enjoy being part of the show. So I'm uh, well, and and you say that I, I just they may be B actors because they weren't the movie stars, but they're giving A list performances. Yeah, yeah, and I've. I've I've mentioned this before, but uh, David Wayne was so excited. I mean, David Wayne used to be the Mad Hatter on Batman. And, um, oh, he was yeah. Always, he was always on, you know, he's always on, like, uh, Quinn Martin shows, or he was on um, Here's Lucy, or, you know, a whole bunch of, he's always a guest star. And then before that, he was a, he was a dancer, he was a hoofer on uh, a lot of 40s movies. Um, but he was so happy about being on a movie, a real movie, where he was one of the stars of the movie that uh, the character named Charles Dutton, he went back to Universal the following year and was making a, a show with Larry Hagman called The the Good Life, and he got to play a, a billionaire, and he asked that, he, that his character name be changed to Charles Dutton because he had such good luck with the name Charles Dutton in the movie. <laughs> that is so, funny. So, you know, God bless that guy. You know, and you know that he... He made his his SAG hospitalization because he had so many hours as a you know as a movie star now, and this is you know this this got this got him his his pension benefits and all that. So it's like all these all these folks, these regular hardworking Joes and Janes that you know they 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 were all you know contract players at Universal. They all had their moment in the sun with this film, and uh, it's it's fun seeing them every minute that you watch the show. You love all the characters, especially. I mean. I, I adore Kate Reed in this film. She just sells the whole thing and made the whole movie for me. Um, but it's just great seeing all these people getting a shot at being in a big movie and uh, just acting their hearts out. So that's that's where I am with this movie. Of course, I'm not a, just a disinterested okay, party. Okay, since you brought this up, I wrote this down. I always go through looking for like little bits of trivia and things just in case we, we hit something. Yeah. 
So you know there's an actor, Charles Dutton, right? Yes. Okay, the black actor from the Alien 3 and, and yeah, he was yeah. on a television show. David Wayne, who plays Charles Dutton, has the same birthday as the actor Charles S. Dutton. Wow. That okay. is crazy. That's, wow. Uh. <laughs> Which, by the way, January the 30th, if you want to put that in your notes. But, January yes. Okay. So David Wayne, who loved the name Dr. Charles Dutton, actually has the same birthday as the actor Charles S. Dutton. Wow, and it's one three zero one thirty January thirty. Okay, you gotta yep. you gotta play that on the pick three sometime. <laughs> <laughs> it's signed. See, I, I always go research little bits of stupid stuff. That's but awesome. <laughs> I didn't know that was gonna come up, and I was like, I, and you just triggered it when you said talked about he wanted to have the same uh, name twice. I was like, wait a minute, I read something about the actual actor Charles S. Dutton. Oh wow. Oh, so that, well, that was definitely jelly side up. That was really cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> jelly side up. Wow. Well. Uh, <laughs> When folks want to hear uh, your scintillating conversations, where can they go on the internet and out, out there in Radio Land? Where, where are see, you? See, well, that, that's the subtle way of saying we're yeah. done. <laughs> well, okay, you two idiots, <laughs> shut up. This The Friday sleepover is a little late. Uh, must you stay? <laughs> Can't you go? <laughs> yeah, this way to the gravy uh, grass, yeah. No, it's, uh, yes. well, can, no, I'm, I'm thinking can. about all my listeners who are on their Pelotons or, or treadmills, and they're like, it's usually 20 minutes, and I'm just I was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely my long day. <laughs> yeah, okay, so we're, here's the podcast not to come to unless you, if you don't want 20-minute episodes, because we go a lot longer. Uh, we are through the Wilder Ride. Uh, that's the, the, the we went after the, the the actor Gene Wilder just after he passed away. We decided we wanted to do something similar to this, uh, movies by minutes. So we called it the Wilder Ride because we knew between me and Walt it was going to be a wild ride anyway. And we're doing the films of Gene Wilder. Season one we broke down Young Frankenstein one minute at a time. Season two we broke down Blazing Saddles. We had started to do Silver Streak at least in the pre-production for season three, and then something about a pandemic and people not wanting to be in in studios together and all that kind of stuff kind of put us on our heels but we decided we would do a listener's lounge where we could bring people in and interview a lot of guests a lot of folks a lot of voices you may have heard in seasons one and two and some other people so right now we are having a blast bringing a weekly sort of talk show where we bring you a, an interesting guest once a week we're calling it the wilder ride listener's lounge Everything's thewilderride.com, the Wilder Ride at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, on Patreon, and on our T Public store. In fact, Walt, I'm going to kick it over to you. Uh, we made our Patreon content free during this, this pandemic because we knew a lot of people were hurting and they might need a distraction. Well, we have a lot of stuff out there on Patreon. We have reviewed, we did a, a four or five part series on the Big Lebowski. We've looked at Christmas Vacation. We've, um, got probably six or eight different movies that we've broken down in different formats. We were even brave enough. I'll to, even throw in there, not only Poltergeist, but you and I decided to bring our I was wives say, in we, for the oh Princess boy. Bride. That <laughs> we was were fun. crazy enough or smart enough to bring our wives in. And, and, that, and that's a great movie. Um, you know, and it's a movie that both of our wives have loved for a long time. So the Princess Bride is a, is a favorite you know, for everybody. So that was a, that was fun. So yeah, go out to patreon.com check out our, our page there while the wilder ride. And, uh, you're going to find at least a movie that you like. And, you know, we've also done two interviews with, um, celebrities that are worth listening to. And one of them was Beverly D'Angelo, uh, who of course was from the vacation movies. And the other one was uh, Lyle from Blazing Saddles, uh, Burton Gilliam. Yeah, Burton Gilliam, yeah, and that was that was a great episode too. I was listening to that and it was wonderful. He's uh, 
It's nice to know there's people like that in the world. He is such a great guy. And I've told this before other places, but I had reached out to his, um, to his agent and probably like 20 minutes later, I get a call that pops up from Texas and I'm like, "Eh, Jim O'Kane and about three other people out in Texas. And I pick it up and, Hey, Walt Murray, this is Burton Gilliam. <laughs> and I was like, there is no doubt that this is not a joke because nobody could do that voice. <laughs> so, so he's just a great guy and uh, we loved having him on. So that's a fun, fun interview to check out. Oh, wow. That is a great one to go revisit if you haven't listened to it uh, because we were, we told him we'll, we'll only take about an hour. And at hour two, he said, boys, I'd like to talk more, but my wife's calling me to dinner. <laughs> Yeah, so Jim, you're not the only one we do that to. <laughs> no, it, it's fine. You guys can stay as long as you'd like. But thank you so much for being on this week. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun t- talking with so many different people and, ha- and how they're viewing movies. And uh, you know, we're all part of a, a bigger group called uh, Movies by Minutes. I try to push this on Fridays. That Movies by Minutes, you can listen to movies examined one minute of, uh, or usually one minute of screen time per episode. Uh, there's Right now, as we're recording this, there's over 140, I think there's 140 different Movies by Minutes groups out there. You can find them real easily over at MoviesByMinutes.com. I really suggest go out and check those out. Uh, if you want to talk about this particular show, we're on uh, uh, all the typical social media like uh, Facebook at w- Project Wildfire or on, uh, what is it, Twitter at Andromeda Minute. Uh, also, AndromedaMinute.com, you can pick up any of our previous 42 episodes. We're also available on your typical podcast podcatcher things like uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, you know the rest. I don't have to go through that. But anyway, we will be back next week. Guys, thank you again so much for being on the show. Um, in if uh, we, will, we will have hopefully everybody will have a good weekend. We'll see you here on Monday. Uh, in the meantime, please stay six feet apart, wash your hands and uh, we'll get rid of this plague as soon as possible. Thanks again so much. We'll see you here next week on the Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.